1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and uh, today we are very happy to have with us um, Professor Gillian Straker all the way uh, from Australia, where it is now um, we're recording. It's about four p m. in New York City and six a m her time. So um, we welcome you. Um, to the show, uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, we're very pleased to to finally make this um, happen. Um, I want to uh, before the interview gets started. I want to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to just give people um, a bit of uh, of. Jill's um, sort of bio, and I'm going to do that now, and then I'm going to say a couple of words about how we came to do this interview, which is going to be a little bit different than what I've done uh, in the past, and you'll learn why in a moment. So, um, Jillian Straker is a is a clinical professor at, in the School of Psychology at Sydney University, and she's also a visiting research professor at the University. Uh, Jill, you'll correct my pronunciation. I would say of the Vitvaderstraat. Vatersran in South Africa? Perfect. Is that okay? Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. Um, She's also a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and supervisor and and has a private practice. Um, She's co-director for the Center for Applied Studies in Psychotherapy and Counseling. Um, And uh, I'm assuming that's in, in Sydney, Jill, is that correct? Okay, and she's also involved um, in several local and international uh, training programs. I think that's probably an understatement, by the way. Um she's a member of the New South Wales Institute for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy and the International Association of Relational Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, as well as the Australian Centre of Psychoanalysis, which is um, uh, a Lacanian um, institute. so um, so your influences, her influences, are I think pretty vast. Um, Jill has broad experience for sure, working in the area of post-traumatic and continuing traumatic stress. Um, she's worked with. You'll have to tell us what is UNHCR. That's United Nations Human. Uh, what is UNHCR? For United yeah, Nations for, Human Commission on Refugees. Great. Um, on programs for survivors of torture and detention. Um, She was involved in providing counseling services to individuals on the run from the apartheid state and has published numerous articles in the fields of post-traumatic and continuous traumatic stress, whiteness, peace studies, and spirituality. She's published two books, Faces in the Revolution, which was co-authored with the Sanctuary's counseling team. And most recently, she's published a book called The Talking Cure, um, co-written uh, with a doc- 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 Dr. Jackie Winship. Um, and currently, um, she's also doing something that is really incredibly interesting, um, as I've been running a podcast for a long time, um, with, uh, uh, Rachel Burton and Andy, uh, gives, um, she has, uh, created a podcast series and it's entitled, I love the title, three associating that's as in the numeral three associating. And, uh, I've certainly listened to it. I encourage people to listen to it. It's totally unique. It's a podcast that, um, focuses on, uh, it's, it's a, live supervision, if you will, um, that one gets to listen in and listen to Jill work with clinicians, um, on their, uh, on their cases. And it's really, it's, uh, there's nothing, as far as I know, there's nothing out there, um, nothing out there like it. So, uh, so that's, that's a lot. So Jill, welcome to, welcome to the program. And, uh, so it's been a long time in, um, in bringing you here. Um, And I guess one more thing just for the listeners. Um, Usually we do a book. You'd be expecting that I would talk about the most recent book, The Talking Cure, which was published um, really recently. Um, Jill, when was it published? Published in uh, 2019, yes? Yeah, so it's published really recent, sort of pandemic publishing. Um, And uh, I was going to initially do this book, which is um, a book that is for people who, like a person on, I think, Jill, a person on the street who's thinking maybe I should go into therapy should definitely run into this book, would you say? Yeah, exactly. It
1: was written for the lay public, yep, to try and encourage yeah. them to have psychotherapy other than uh, more behaviorally oriented, thinking about interiority, is the way mm-hmm. I would just summarize it, yep. Mm-hmm it's
0: a very, it's one of those reads that the, you know, I found myself like really, you know, going, Oh yeah, yeah. Tell this story. Oh yeah. Here's this story of this, this sort of a complex, you know? And um, and while I liked the book very much uh, because um, for those who have been listening to the program for the past year um, you know, that I've interviewed uh, M Fockery Davids on his book, internal racism and Sheldon George on trauma and race. And then Neil Altman on, white privilege and um, part of, you know, sort of my exploration and thinking about what does psychoanalysis have to say uh, about uh, about racism. And so I've been quite aware of Jill's work. Um, and I said, listen, I'd like to talk to you about about you know like 21 articles that you've written over the last 20 something years and so listeners um, this is a new departure we are now in new books and psychoanalysis doing new books and also new articles and old articles yeah. <laughs> in, in psychoanalysis so so it's a bra- it's a brave brave new uh, brave new moment in the podcast um Usually, Jill we ask what motivated you to write the book, but we're i I'm, I'm been trying to craft a little bit of a different question and um you were working as a clinician uh, in South Africa during apartheid, and I guess I, the question that came to mind is to begin is um what?" I don't want to say this in a way, like not just simply what was your experience, but how how has your experience of living in South Africa during apartheid impacted your thinking um, as a psychoanalytically informed
1: clinician? How about that? Well, I'll try my best, Tracy. It's, a, it's sort of <laughs> got to do with the evolution of myself as a person as much as kind of an evolution of thinking psychoanalytically. But first of all, I did want to say thank you, and I am quite honoured that I'm the first person in a different format. And (laughs) to say, Tracy, that I've really enjoyed listening to your style of interviewing and your podcasts, and I really mean that. And also, I've enjoyed our humour in emails, so (laughs) (laughs) just to note (laughs) that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And You know, perhaps I will start with um, the question you usually ask because it's relevant and to the point. I think that my first book, which was Faces in the Revolution, on the first overt level I wrote because that particular group wanted an oral history to be written of their particular experiences. As township youth who were very involved in the revolution and basically gave up their education, gave up a huge amount of their lives. Many of them were illiterate in order to be in the revolutionary struggle. So I think on the overt level, that was part of it, that there was a desire. Also, I was trying to smuggle in uh, some sort of addressing of the trauma that that group had experienced because they had been witness to their leader being killed. They'd been taken to a community center which had been invaded. And uh, I first became involved by being asked to intervene because they were very disrupted and uh, as often happens with trauma, were in a state of externalizing all the trauma in a lot of aggression and they were equally not Safe. So I began my work with them and developed a long term relationship with them. So, as I say, on the first level, it was about documenting the experience. But truthfully, I think it was around trying to make some sense of the chaos inside of myself that uh, was stimulated by suddenly going from being a kind of uh, middle class South African wandering, drowned, shaded streets to thinking with a group about matters of life and death. And I think I also wanted to somehow humanize the group because even in the liberal press, they were being spoken of as a lost generation or brutalized. or. So I, I think that was my um, overt reason, but I think the covert reason had much more to do with trying to order some chaos, perhaps, within myself. So that's how it would start. But my, my journey didn't start there, really, uh, Tracy. My journey actually started in America, where I had fled uh, at the time of the uh, youth uh, rebellion and the youth push, which was the beginning, actually, of the real demise of apartheid. And while I had recognized at some level abstractly, yes, that apartheid was wrong, my parents at an abstract level also felt that it was wrong, but I really had tuned out the significance of what it actually meant for people at the receiving end of it. And I I honestly think I tuned it out more than most, and I think that I came to it later than many of the comrades that I worked with. Once I went back, well, when I was in America and I had sufficient distance and also with wonderful people there who gently, gently interrogated me about my position and South Africa, I think I began to become capable of tuning in the significance of it at a visceral personal level, not just as an abstract Idea that apartheid was wrong. And that led me, even though I was on track in America to get a green card and to immigrate, after a lot of discerning, I felt that I really needed to go back and to take responsibility for the fact that I had lived and benefited in the society. And I then I did go back, and I think that if I were to say, and still to this day, the concept that I feel was most helpful in my understanding myself, and I can only in a way talk for myself because I don't want to homogenize all whites or all blacks or all anybody for that matter, but I think Talian's Law, the Kleinian idea of Talian's Law, that uh, I really. Thought about the kinds of things that might have been said in my environment, in my home, you know, about a fear of uh, black people and what might happen, you know, if there was a revolution. And I really became aware that it was an externalization of our own fear of our own aggression, the damage that we had done to the other. And the fantasy of that returning in sort of retaliation, which we then, I think, uh, acted in terms of that fantasy. So Italian's law, for me, is, is a very helpful way of thinking about fear of the other, which is really fear of the enemy within, if I could put it that way. So that, that was really important to me. And, you know, of course, if you became involved in opposing apartheid, you would have realistically based fear, which I think that as whites one did have if you engaged of the state because it was quite brutal. And I think there was also another enemy within, which was one's fear that if one articulated ideas against the dominant ideology, which at that point was apartheid, that you would be ostracized. Less so perhaps in my own case, but I certainly experienced it. Uh, And, you know, I think that we can all identify with it, even in our current political situation, the the in-groups and out-groups. So... I, I, I think that if you want to interrupt me, Tracy, do, because that's, you know, like the first part of a long journey. So I don't no, I'm,
0: enjoy- I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying listening. I think it's, it's keep, please, keep
1: talking okay. as you so, wish. Absolutely. So I think that's you know, dissociation, having the um, real privilege of containment and the idea of a third when I was in America that helped me, to understand that and then being able to go deeper and come up against Talion's law within myself. And then I think a next very key moment for me was when I was working with uh, a young man who was very, very active in the struggle. And in a moment of, uh, I think, confiding at that point, which was unusual for him because he was quite defended and I think he saw and I saw that to some extent he was educating me and indeed he was because it was a world that was completely foreign to me, his world in the township, in massive oppression, deprivation, uh, also conflict within different groups because the apartheid state was fostering the so-called black-on-black Violence. Mm-hmm. But he confided in me that he had been involved in the brutal uh, killing of a. Stanley. Yes, Stanley. Of a person who was ex- sort of uh, thought to be an informer and um, had informed to the police, they thought, about uh, an attack that the comrades in the township were planning. And the police at Bovie trapped the grenades, and uh, their comrades were killed. And this was a reprisal, and it it was very brutal because it was in the days of necklacing, which was putting a tire around the person's neck, filling it with petrol and setting it alight. And this was an enormous uh, shock. I can still actually remember the the complete, I think you've spoken in one of your interviews of a white blank psychosis. Well, I think that Mm. overtook Mm -hmm. me in that moment. And then in retrospect, when I thought about it, I thought how much I had once again been out of touch with myself and had exported certain responsibilities into Stanley for the future. I think I'd idealized him. I think I'd just owned my own responsibility. Mm -hmm. I was much younger then, but I was still older than him. So something about the sort of generational divide and how to navigate that. At a time at which actually the youth were very much challenging the older generation, their own parents, um, you know, not so much having that much to do with uh, white people. But um, still, there was a big generational issue going on in the township. And I found that when I really thought about it, that I had allied uh, with him in a way which was positive to take the course forward, but not in another way of uh, disowning perhaps some of the generational issues, and also disowning mm-hmm. certain responsibility and agency. So, and he and I then had to grapple very much with um, difference and and how to stay connected despite difference, and that was challenging. Yes, Tracy, you sound like you want to say something.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm thinking of several of. Um, the articles that you've written, uh, I'm thinking of the one. Uh, what's it called? Race, race for cover. And um, in that article, um, you, it's uh, I think it's in that article where you talk about um, the group that you were working with, the you know anti-apartheid group, and of, you know m- amongst the in the group the white activists. Um, and participants that the tendency was to um to use to fetish that that there could be a fetishization of Great. uh the black activists and I was a question that I have somewhere here where I just thought it was very important when thinking about the uh like a black white clinical couple is um that you know In my, I've noticed in myself. I've certainly noticed in in white supervisees I work with who have black patients is, like, well, do your black patients get to have destructive parts? Do they get to have um, really, you know, like serious, you know, unconscious conflicts, or do they have to? Does that have to be tiptoed around? How to be the white analyst talking to uh, a black patient about um, aspects of themselves that they that that they may seek to disavow and we sort of, uh, you know, in an attempt to be a good white, um, I think that's a term you use. It's, we would say good whites here, but a good white and, you know, just sort mm-hmm. of collude. Um, and I, I, I love, I really thought that I taught, actually taught that article, um, alongside, uh, I sent you the the syllabus I'm trying to remember. Oh, I mm-hmm. said, alongside mm-hmm. a Norman Mailers, the white, the white Negro, which is a real, um, a real piece of a real piece of work about the fantasy of you know what the black man has that, that, that the you know that the white man wants is really what the white man has imputed um, to the black man and disavowed himself. Um, anyway, I sort of I don't know where I've taken us with with that recollection, but it's nice to be able to say something to you about that because it's a really excellent um essay on on uh, disavowal and fetishization. And it's a more Freudian for you, a more, <laughs> more classically <laughs> Freudian use is in reading you, Jill, in reading you, Jill, you know, so so Jill spoke about um her experience of dissociation before. And coming to uh, America as sort of a moment where whatever had not been formulated into thought, began to formulate in, into thought about about the situation, about apartheid, about the brutalization and dehumanization. Um, and Jill and I had an exchange. I don't know when it was, but maybe in the summer. I was like, well, I really actually <laughs> never understood dissociation as well as when you said something like, it's like the water you, you're swimming in that you don't even... Do you remember?
1: Yes, you I do. Pre- I do. Can you, can you
0: articulate it for those who don't understand dissociation? Who are more, you know, don't I, I, You know, those of There are some who still exist. I think so.
1: Um, I
0: can't be alone. So,
1: what <laughs> could you do? That could you talk to us
0: about dissociation and water?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think particularly as a child, we just accept to some extent where we are. Of course, if it's terrible we and we're traumatised or something, we might. Uh, right there and then perhaps have some awareness of two worlds. But I think in in a situation like apartheid where I think, and I, this is another concept I'd like to put in there, I think the absolute pernicious thing about it is the internalization of hierarchies of superiority and inferiority. And I, I, I think that that is something that you are just swimming in that water. So you don't really know that that's what you're internalizing until I got out of that water and went to America, which was like standing on the land and looking back and saying, oh, yeah, I was actually in water, and it's pretty awful water, but I didn't really know I was (laughs) swimming in it. It was it was, so, it was it was completely
0: toxic, but I but I didn't uh, but I wasn't poisoned. Yeah. Well,
1: you know it's interesting because it is it's 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 for me dissociation is tuning out something that you sort of have at the periphery of your awareness. So as I said abstractly, yes, apartheid was wrong, but did I tune in the significance of that for an individual on the other side of it? No, I didn't, and. Um, mm-hmm you know, I I, I think uh, to my cost. And then I I think that later I could also see that apart from the dissociation, there were other factors involved, like uh, Italian's law repressing my own uh, damage that was being done to others, and then fearing that it would come back, you know, to me or to us as a group, So that's why I think, Tracy, I've tried to study many frameworks because I think we have so few tools that, uh, you know, it's not for me either Klein or Freud or relational. It's what can we kind of gain from each of them to understand something. I don't know if that explained the dissociation in the way you were hoping. No,
0: no. I mean, I I found found it really – I found it very helpful. And it's like – you know, obviously it's not the same as repression you know which i've known and but it was more it was something about it like actually um how you described it helped to um uh, help me to formulate and to feel my way into it uh, which i really hadn't felt my way into what dissociation and i was like oh yeah of course i know about dissociation like i know it i live it you know what i mean i can there's moments where one emerges from it, and um, you know it's as if uh, you you know it, it, it's. I mean, I know what the process is, but I ne- had never really read anything. It was just a little email exchange, and I was like, "Oh, there it is! Finally, it's it's been written about in a way that I could just I could just get it." But you know, just what's coming to mind as you're talking, what's interesting is that how. You know, I'm uh, just about to be uh, uh, 59 years old and next weekend, actually, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, you know, when I came of age on the college campuses here in America in the 80s, there was so much furor, right, about South Africa. But I remember, I mean, I I was not very involved with it. I was more involved with, like, you know, feminist activism, I think, at the time, um, as an old women's studies major and all this, but... Uh, I remember friends saying, American friends saying, you know, well, you know, what the South Africans, you know, that are here, they're like, well, why are you so concerned about South Africa? So the dissociation maybe is, you know, the the focus on the problem of racism all the way over in South Africa, <laughs> rather than the problem of racism uh, on the campus itself, in the town itself, in the city itself, in the country itself, in the, in America itself. Um, so it sounds like a, 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 a similar process, um, uh, you know, I the way it's spot we, on.
1: I think that's, yeah, I think that's exactly right, Tracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That the
0: blind, the, the blind spot, um, the blind spot. Um, you yeah. know, I want to ask you a question. This is a little, I don't know, maybe you don't have an answer to it, but I've, um, are you familiar? So you're the second South African, uh, analyst um, from someone raised in South Africa and and formed um, uh, in part as a clinician in South Africa. The other person is uh, Fakri Davids, Mm -hmm. who trained at the British Psychoanalytic um, and also left South Africa. Um, I like Fakri's work very much, and yet it seems that he's, he's cited almost nowhere now you might not want to answer this question. <laughs> I don't, but do you have any thoughts about this? Do You know his work. Are you familiar with his thinking? internal his book, internal I, racism. I know.
1: I certainly am, Tracy. I do yes. know his work. I think he's a lovely person. In fact, he was in Cape Town, I think, when I was in Johannesburg, in the bad old days. So, um, yes, uh, I, I, I do know him. I do know his work, and in fact. I would love at some point to have uh, a dialogue with Vakri because I just uh, think he's incredibly insightful and thoughtful. I do have some differences perhaps um, uh, around Rosenfeld. I'm not sure if you picked it up in the article I wrote in the 90s after going to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because that was the next kind of uh, moment in which it was a confrontation with pure cruelty sadism when one actually listened to the testimony of the perpetrators. And in that article, I spoke about Rosenfeld's gang, which I think that Fakri has... Uh, taken up in terms of seeing it as a normal part of the mind. And I'm not totally sure that I would go with that. I feel that he's made an amazing contribution. But when he talks, for example, about stranger anxiety, in the South African context, black people actually wouldn't have been strangers. They would have been incredibly familiar at six or eight months more like intimate strangers than the others. So I think that complicates it a bit. I certainly agreed with his idea, and we know it's true, the doll identification, but I guess I see it in terms of those tropes of superiority and inferiority, which were so pernicious in the institution of uh, the domestic black childcare worker, but I do think, in a you know, in a certain way, also pertains to uh, feminism. So yes, so there are many areas in which I would overlap with him, and I also think it's fantastic that he's actually uh, brought this forward for us to be able to think about. But I must say, I went to Rosenfeld. When it was more extreme, because of Rosenfeld's idea that we really invest in the bad aspects of ourselves and we idealize those aspects of uh, omnipotence, self sufficiency, cruelty, which I see very much in uh, white supremacism, for example, and Sheldon George's idea of race as metaphor, which and he relates it to the Afro pessimists. I mean, I couldn't go there because not my area, but it did seem to me to make a lot of sense. And I kind of felt that when we, I think I possibly would reserve still Rosenfeld for a more extreme form. But as we know, the paranoid schizoid position is a position. And we can all move into it and move out of it. And maybe there are indeed moments when we move into the Rosenthal gang. But I'd love to have a discussion with Vakri and why he's not quoted. Uh, it's as if, I mean, mystery. his book
0: is 11 years old. And there's like, I, I did a citation search the other day. He's cited like by three authors it's it's true and his it's been reviewed three times i mean i want to get back i want to get back to you but it is you know yes, and i agree, I, I agree. yeah because it is it's within psycho it's a it's a psychoanalytic text through and through um but i think in, in listening to you speak now uh, what's incredible and really uh you know admirable is not really it's like a dumb word but um but you are In reading you, one is in, you feel you're in the hands of a person who's really read a lot. Now, you just described Rosenfeld, the gang leader. That's the Life and Death Instincts article, which uh, I just am assigning somewhere in the next two weeks. But I was just thinking, like, like, oh, you just picked that up, and oh, now we're on to Sheldon George. Um, Would you say that your formation, and I'm using that term decidedly, I get the sense in, from, from reading, you know, throughout your articles that your, your training was um, in many respects, uh, uh, once you became a psychologist and you were initially a, a behaviorist, it was like the only game in town, I guess, right? You know, that you've created in a, sort of the Lacanian sense, you, you've done a formation. Uh, rather than a than a proper um you know sign up for training and four years later we call you a psychoanalyst or i'm a little conf- conf- confused about how how you know how you know so much and in my sense is you weren't you're not institute trained which i uh, if that's the case i am, i really admire that so t- can you can you fill that in a little
1: bit for us sure uh, well as you say when i started uh, not even cognitive behavior therapy. Behavior therapy was the only game in town. And uh, yes, I always sort of found it absolutely bizarre that we could have an idea of a stimulus empty box response. No kidding. That's what we were taught. (laughs) Nothing in between. Stimulus empty box, i.e. person response. Anyway. Again, America came to my rescue. We had a man called Dick Rock. I don't even know if he's still around. He was a visiting lecturer from the States and an existentialist. And wow, it was such a breath of fresh air. So I kind of uh, grabbed onto that and uh, read all the existentialists and became passionate for it. Freud, of course, was totally trashed, as was the... uh, How how things worked in that Mm -hmm. time. And Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I imbibed that ideology both around Freud and Klein and all the psychoanalysts. But Mm -hmm. when I went to work in a children's unit, which I did, and I was playing in the doll's house with kids, and lo and behold, you know, the little boys were locking their dads in the bathroom and, you know, (laughs) going off with their mothers. (laughs) And (laughs) I started to think. Oh my God! There's got to be something about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny. But, but I, I then became, you know, interested and and intrigued and started to to read a lot. That was before I actually left South Africa and went to America. And then when I came back, to be honest, my psychoanalytic reading and studying was totally truncated because it really was a time of action. One mm-hmm. didn't have much time to be thinking, one was sort of in crisis. Then, when I got involved at the university, which I did, wait, can
0: I interrupt you one second? Which is also Jill writes and uh, did this incredible research about the ways in which thinking, um, under uh, in, in in during wartime, I is I think I forget the title of the article, but it's thinking, thinking, under, uh, fire. thinking under fire, under fire. There we go. Yeah, that, that you're know, sort of looking at like the ways in which um, thought can be uh, sort of predictably uh, derailed. And that
1: was a, a study of your colleagues, is that correct? Well, myself very much, myself and my colleagues, as I mm-hmm. said. So it was mm-hmm. m- uh, me and my group that was kind enough to talk to me, but it reflects myself uh-huh, very much. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think our thinking was. Uh, directed only toward uh, the goal, which was to try to uh, depose the apartheid mm-hmm. state. And so, well, group psychology and the ego, When I think, reflecting back on it, you know, how hard it was to have a mind of your own and how you have to, to some extent, give up your own mind because you have to be part of a group if you're going to leverage change. Mm-hmm. So during that time, that was truncated. But once I was at the university and uh, had some responsibility for training, I started to, again, sort of think psychoanalytically and think about how can we make psychoanalytic ways of thinking more accessible because we can't be doing, you know, one-to-one work on the couch. So I then at that point went in two directions. One was community psychology and the other was that I went to the Tavistock and I um, did a training in brief term, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, David Madden, (laughs) and thought how can we think psychoanalytically but not necessarily work in the kind of conventional way. And so then when I came back to South Africa, at that point, it was trying to set up services uh, in, in the township in a broader way. And there were many, many colleagues that were helping in that, the Sanctuary's Counselling Team, the detainees' Support Services. Um, so there was a lot of fertile discussion, even though I think we were struggling uh, to think so. Yes, my, my, um, I did spend quite considerable time going back and forth to the Tapestock in the times that I could. But yes, when I came to Australia, um, there was a thought did I actually want to do a training? And I decided actually I didn't because I felt that mm-hmm. there's something about it potentially, potentially that narrows the focus, which Mm -hmm. I felt unwilling to do. In Australia, the kind of zeitgeist was more towards self-psychology, and through self-psychology I became quite involved in relational. And Mm -hmm. I've got friends who are ex-South Africans who are very involved in relational, so that kind Mm -hmm. of led me there. And also, uh, Lacanian thinking is quite strong in Sydney, and that totally fascinated me. Ah, I, okay. I I want to say one thing which is maybe a little bit kind of rude over the, the airways, but one, <laughs> one, one of oh, so brace yourself, Tracy. One of the things Just say said,
0: just say anything is my, my policy, so go <laughs> ahead. All right.
1: I I I think that the joy of being in a society which is very, very privileged is that you can have the luxury of intellectual, an intellectual wank, so to speak, without <laughs> having to pay a huge price in guilt, uh, which mm-hmm. is not the case if you are in a place like South Africa, which I totally still love and feel committed to. And I, I tell you this, the people there, Tracy, are, are honestly mean this, like, 10 years 15 years ahead of the curve in thinking about race so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know people like Norman Duncan who uh, yeah. and Garth Stevens both of whom are black people who actually took over the running of the department i was in super smart Jill Eagle who's also done a lot of research yes. Yes. and uh, you know uh, they're pretty amazing in how they're thinking and and formulating a way forward. Uh, now that that you know, one is seeing, one is reaping the whirlwind in so many ways. And how to yes. think about it. So yes. That's yes. perhaps all I'll say now. But yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 No, it it brings to mind. I mean, you know, what's taking place in uh, you know the and and analytic training in America since 2020, since the murder of George Floyd. Um, It's like a, you know, there's sort of a a manic uh, rush rush to action um, and an attempt to, you know, the, there's like a fear of a black planet, you know, at, uh, at many institutes. It's like, well, we want to have, we want to have black students. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Absolutely. We do. We want black students. So This is like the conversation. I mean, not simply yeah. where I am, but like at every institute or friends across, we want black, but, and I always uh, say, but how many will be too many? Well, How many black students will be too many? And, um, I, and somehow that I think connects to to you know sort of this this somehow what you just said before brought that to mind. It's like and so the anxiety like working through the anxiety and like studying learning from South Africa if 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 you want to it's it's there you know like learning from South Africa um, is um you know as you say fifteen years uh, fifteen years out um, from where things are certainly in,
1: in the United States. Um, and that is so familiar to me, even work, working at the university during the apartheid years. Uh, mm-hmm. too, too many was not very many, I found. And if one pushed against it, then that whole thing about having to fight with the enemy within, because then you are mm-hmm. going against the dominant ideology uh, right. There's a pro- there's a price to pay in mm-hmm. uh, a certain ostracism and alienation. So oh, I, I just yeah. think it's so uh, one has to do it. But I'm just looking at all the kinds of things that that come the into fallout. Yeah, the fallout. Yeah, the fallout. The, the
0: the fallout. The the ways in which I think mm-hmm. people here in the states who have been very active. Um, in trying to move the needle at different psychoanalytic institutes you know it's like white colleagues talking to white colleagues and uh those conversations you know people it 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 it's overwhelming how important it is um to mm. uh, to whites um to white psychoanalysts that black people remain on the out, on the outskirts even though there's i'm not a racist you know i'm certainly not a racist but there's a constant the, the feelings are so intense can we can we you know can we have them? Can we talk about them? Can we know them or do we just run and you know, turn our heads in, you know in the sand? It's easier to pretend that uh, this will just solve as, as actually as Fokker David says something wonderful. Um, oh, there's plenty of racism, but there are no racists. <laughs> you can't find a racist for miles, but racism <laughs>
1: continues. It's really
0: to something that... Well,
1: I, I I think that that returns me to the idea of the fetish because I think mm-hmm. on the one hand there's what you're talking about, which, you know, uh, is the fear of the black planet, as you put it. Mm-hmm. But I think on the other side is something you referred to earlier. And I think that that, to me, Uh, comes in very, very often around the fetishization and the need to be seen as the good person, as the good (laughs) white, as the person who isn't racist. Mm -hmm, And something something within that, for me, the fetish is a denial of limitation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do value the fact that if I were to say where I've spent most time sort of studying it probably is in the Lacanian, and as you say, in, in Lacan, it's a formation rather than a training in a in a sort of formal sense. I've spent a lot of time in that, and I do like that idea of, um, you know, how we try to paper over the kind of hole, at the center of being, and how we do use others to do it, and mm-hmm. I I think that on the one hand, there's this terrible uh, fear that we'll be politically incorrect. And here I definitely agree with Fakri that um, why are we so worried about being politically incorrect unless underneath there's something that we Mm -hmm. haven't yet resolved? Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other hand, there's kind of, uh, well, I think it's Talian's law that fear. That our own damage that we've done to the other, uh, we fear mm-hmm. that it will return to us in some form.
0: Well, Ryder, as the uh, black activist Stokely Carmichael from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, once said, uh, "The chickens are going to come home to roost," which I think is, um, which is also a reference <laughs> okay. to Tallien's Italian, to law. Um, you know, when I was preparing for the interview. Um, so many different places to go but I did something funny I've never done before I wrote like do you know the work of Raymond Williams the critical British critical theorist at all sort of um around the uh, sort of a, a, I guess a peer maybe a little bit older uh, than Stuart Hall and um, mm-hmm. yeah I just love his work and so I wrote keywords with Jillian, because I love that book you know <laughs> Raymond Williams keywords and I so I wrote some keywords I just want to I'm going to read them out loud. Voice, voice, the Mm -hmm. word voice is very important in in your writing. Of course, the word dissociation and trauma. I noticed the word, the term procedural memory, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. term capacity to think, disavowal and fetish we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Anti analytic third, we have to get to morality. Then it was Bourdieu, Baba, Mm -hmm. Butler, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. beneficiary, and shame. Uh, those were the words that you know. At the end of reading everything and rereading, I said, "What mm-hmm. What are the words that are with me?" Now, of mm-hmm. course, this says a lot. Says a lot more about me than about you. But I do think that these
1: <laughs> that no, these words I, I, do. I think you're right. They do recur. Mm. Yeah.
0: They oh, do. good. So it's sort of like an, an objective counter-transference, like I picked up something
1: real, you think? <laughs> okay. In, insofar as any of us can be objective. Yes, Tracy, I do think yes, so. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Like like <laughs> many people, if they read your articles, you know, <laughs> once or twice, uh, they would come up with this. Will you talk to us about um, this, uh, I, this? To my mind, your original theoretical contribution is clearly the article on the anti-analytic third, in which you look at the work of several colleagues. We're gonna go over 50 minutes, guys, so um, that's how it's gonna go. But uh, that you, you look at the work of uh, in sort of a clinical moment uh, in the work of Neil Altman, clinical moment in the work of Ken Corbett, and I had the feeling that you were taken by these clinical representations of um, uh, sort of noxious social discourse that enters the room, the clinical encounter, and throws everything, um, throws, throws the analyst out of their seat, out yes. of their analytic chair. Can you t- talk to us about the anti-analytic third? I think it's a great concept, um, Okay, for, well, and we need it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think I introduced it uh, in the light, uh, well, not in the light of, because I hadn't heard you say it, but it goes along with something that I have heard you say which is about how important it is for us to have words which detoxify our shame about, mm-hmm. you know, being entangled in racism or homophobia or sexism because mm-hmm. once we sort of have a concept or a word that can kind of be a life raft which allows us to grab onto it and think mm-hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the third has always been valorized as something very positive. And, of course, course there are many ways of thinking about the third. Jessica Benjamin's got at least three right there. But Mm -hmm. I I think that the third is something that transcends the couple. But when it transcends the couple, then it's a noxious ideology Mm -hmm. that both of them are actually embroiled in but perhaps from different positions, it will come into the room and be there in hidden ways until suddenly something happens to explode it. Uh, You know, one person will uh, indicate to the other uh, something about uh, their race or their uh, sexuality and it really isn't about something so much personal that you learned from your mother and father. You actually learned it in the water that you swim in, to go back to that. And you yeah. kind of imbibed it through osmosis, So, <laughs> which is the other way, I think, about uh, how we dissociate. We imbibe it through osmosis. Um, a procedural memory is like you know, when you learn how to ride a bicycle, you can't describe how you ride the bicycle, but you know how to ride the bicycle. It's in your procedure, how to be with that object. And Mm -hmm. I think that we imbibe through the ideology how to be with the racial other, the gendered other, the uh, person with a different sexual orientation. And we're not even aware of it until Mm -hmm. the person at the other side of that discourse does something to challenge it or you do something that makes it impossible for them not to challenge you, something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But, but I wanted a word so that we could say, okay, I'm in an anti-analytic third and not go down <laughs> a shornhole. hole.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of, yeah, right. So, you know, you, like like you you can now know it when you see it um, uh, yes. rather than uh, not be able to, to see it and then bring um, – bring language, uh, language around it so that there can be, there, there's a way, I mean, there's a way out because it's just this collapse. Um, uh, you know, the case of Neil Altman and his patient who's black and the patient's not paying and, and Neil's thinking, oh God, I don't want to push for more money for the money to be paid because, oh God, well, he's black and I'm Jewish. And like, (laughs) it's like, okay, well, what's actually, Yes. What does the, what, what the patient – express? actually, like, uh, <laughs> my thought when I read that, I, I interviewed Neil in that book years ago, and I was like – I don't know if I said this to him. I was like, well, your patient obviously is, uh, has a full negative transference and has very hateful feelings towards you that they're expressing exactly. about by, not, by, by giving you bounced checks and he just happens to be black. I, I,
1: I, exactly, <laughs> Tracy. <laughs>
0: He's, exactly. black, people, black people can express their hatred for the analytic process by not paying,
1: yes. Yes, oh. and, 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 and then when we get, he, he was so totally in an anti-analytic third as we all get yes. into because he was immersed in the race discourse both mm-hmm. around Jewish and black, and so he couldn't see exactly what you're saying. Well, mm-hmm. the person's a person, and they also going to have their own hateful feelings. And, <laughs> totally. and that goes to also the idea of political correctness because in oh, that yes. moment one wants to be politically correct,
0: right, right, right. Or like you, you know, your the the experience which you detail, you know, about the story of of Stanley and the, and the necklacing, and it's uh, it, it was it was interesting because it's like okay, so I kept asking myself, well,
1: why is he bringing this in? What does he want? From Jill. Well, exactly, and if you think that I could have thought about that uh, <laughs> in that moment,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would be wrong.
1: <laughs> Very,
0: <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but oh, it's like God. to get, yes. <laughs> but to get yes. back to that place, right? It's like you exactly. Know, you
1: know, It's it's
0: crucial because otherwise, you know, you, you really, you can't, I mean, as, as a white clinician, you can't have black patients unless you can hold on to your understanding, you know, like working with supervisees, you're like, well, I, I, I once actually had a black man who was in a group with me and he didn't pay. And, you know, we, I would discuss in the group, well, what are you, what, what are you, what are you trying to tell me by not paying? Oh, you shouldn't bring that up. You're humiliating him and he's black. And I said, uh, well, I st- I said he's he's expressing some negative feelings toward me because I'm working for money and I'm not being paid and I want to know why he wants me to work for free.
1: And, <laughs> know, and it was <laughs> well, you're hundred percent right, and and uh, you weren't in an anti-analytic third. <laughs> you no, I I, a I, real I don't g- <laughs> Right, that was a really, it was
0: really. Um, and and people were were really upset. The white people in the group were very upset with me that I was not. And I said, "Well, he he's, he's he's black, and he's not paying me. Okay, yes. And why does why does he not? Lo- why does he want me to suffer? Why does he not want me to be able to buy food? What's going on?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, uh, you, yeah. yeah. You, were, you were definitely thinking in that situation, Tracy. I can yeah. assure you, with Stanley. <laughs> All thought had fled in that particular moment although <laughs> well, sure.
0: no, I, I don't know what I would have done with Stanley I would have been because you'd seen it on television too right you've read, and, on I had, book, and I had and I feel had. like I saw that on television I think you did you know it was
1: I mean? it was quintessential because of that terrible moment where that's right she's in the death uh, situation but she's worried about her dress going up. it was terrible <laughs> right, right it was absolutely excruciating. Terrible. Yeah
0: that that de- that detail was like so excruciating mm-hmm. i just threw the article across the room <laughs> mm-hmm. i can't go any further right now i was like oh i forgot there's that detail it was like so uncomfortable you know and like oof and it mm-hmm. stayed and mm-hmm. uh, um, listen, I think I think we have to stop. I mean, I don't know. There's there's so much more to say. Um, I I'm supposed to get a go get a pedicure. I'm going to be frank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a, a very uh, uh, important thing to do after we have had such intense and deep discussion. <laughs> a pedicure sounds exactly what's needed, Jason.
0: I mean, there's a lot. Listen, there's a lot more to talk. We didn't even get to the the article. My God, that. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're responding to the, the the most recent um spate of articles from dialogues um the three uh, clini- uh clinicians in training writing about their impasses with black clinicians in training in South Africa writing um writing about their their treatments with white analysts and the racial conflicts it's it's so i mean your response to it is good but I, I just, I want to highlight that for the listeners, get your hands on that because it's so rare for people to write about their treatments while they're in training, first of all. And then the and the ways in which these white analysts and these black patients uh, work, try to work together to reckon with the legacy of of, of racism in South Africa and all the different, and, and what's so interesting, Jill, I'm sure you picked up on this right away, or I'm sure you know this already, as you say, in South Africa, it's 15 years ahead of the, the game in thinking about, about race and racism is the, the
1: black clinicians in training were worried about being. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and that's the anti-analytic third because we are in a racist discourse. We're occupying, you know, if you think about um, a- abuse, you internalize the abuser and the abused and it's the same thing. Uh, th- and that's what I mean by the anti-analytic third, that yes, the, the, the fear of being perceived as racist or being racist, you can't escape it if the water you've swum in is that the squares? So that I'm delighted that you've drawn attention to that article. It's so good. It's super unique. It. <laughs> and it's super unique. And I do agree with you. If people can read it, they should. They should. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, you'll. We'll, I think we'll be in touch. <laughs> I really I recommend, to the, <laughs> I recommend to the listeners to um, uh, check out uh, the podcast, um, Three Associating t-h-r-e-e associating and um it's just a it's a per, it's a perfect listen um for when you're going for a morning walk i that's that's how i first encountered it i took a morning walk and i was like wow where am i it's almost a little it's a little bit like the primal scene i have to say but um <laughs> but that's
1: okay <laughs> Oh, tracy i do hope we're in contact i love your humor and I've really, really enjoyed being in dialogue with you.
0: I've, I've enjoyed it so much, too. All right. And dear listeners, thanks for tuning in, as, as always, and signing off for now. It's uh, Tracy Morgan saying goodbye till next time. And thanks so much, Jillian Straker, for being with us. Thanks, Tracy.